Hi, this is John Harchar, and welcome to episode 6 of Keep On Grooving. Hendrix fans had to wait through 1985 with no new release to get to the following year, where in some senses, they hit the jackpot. In others, they'd hit the bottom of the barrel. It took a small-time startup CD label to provide a new home for some great new releases. Episode 6 the Allen Douglas era, 1986 to 1988. 1986 was a big year. For me, it was the year I graduated high school and started college at Rutgers. For Jimmy, it was the year he had not one, not two, but three new releases come out. Now, he'd had three albums come out in a 12-month stretch before, May 1967, April 1968 in the UK with experienced Axis and Smash Hits, and then March 1971 to January 72 with Cry of Love, Rainbow Bridge, and In the West, not counting things like Isle of Wight and the Royal Albert Hall albums, which would give him six albums in 12 months. But here in the middle of the 80s, Jimi Hendrix would have three albums, a concert film, and a home video release, the bulk of it new material. Jimmy Plays Monterey In February, Jimmy's entire performance at the Monterey Pop Festival was finally released, from the band tuning up in Brian Jones' intro, all the way through the last squeals of the burning and broken guitar at the end of Wild Thing. Yeah, the signs of the LP don't break down evenly, the album is a little over the typical 45 minutes, but on CD it didn't matter. Killing Floor was back from its debut on Kiss the Sky, followed by the debut of Foxy Lady. The next four songs were all previously released, Like a Rolling Stone, Rock Me Baby, Hey Joe, and Can You See Me, but this time you got all the intersong banter. The debuts of The Wind Cries Mary and Purple Haze followed, and the finale of Wild Thing was presented in its nearly 10-minute glory from Jimmy's heartfelt thank you to the audience, every screech and moan he got out of his Stratocaster to the sound of the amps being shut down at the end of the set. Frankly, it should have been done years earlier, but the new format made it viable and desirable. Another new outlet provided a chance for more Hendrix material to be heard and in this case seen. In the 70s, cable TV was in a few homes here and there, mainly in areas where TV reception was difficult or limited. My grandmother outside of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania had cable long before we did New Jersey. This was back and they just had the four channels. But as the 80s dawned, it began to penetrate into more and more communities. This led to the growth of cable outlets like HBO and Showtime. They started out mainly just showing movies, though HBO actually started in Wilkes-Barre showing a boxing match from New York, but they tried to find other programming as well. Comedy specials were a good addition, giving people like George Carlin a place to actually say his seven dirty words and not get into trouble. They also ran music concerts, and in the days before MTV, there weren't many places to see them. In 1986, Monterey pop filmmaker D.A. Pennebaker put together a film of Jimmy Plays Monterey as a companion piece to the earlier film. A year later, he'd do another short film based on Otis Redding's set. With festival organizer Papa John Phillips doing the narration and the inclusion of Eric Burden's song Monterey about the show, it set the stage for the presentation of the footage. He also added in some film of Jimmy in London playing Sgt. Pepper's and Wild Thing around Christmas 1967 before the Monterey material. Pennebaker basically presented the footage in order, 
the parts that were shown in Monterey Pop and in the Jimi Hendrix film were pretty much shown as they were with few alterations. He did have a problem, though. Due to either not having enough film left on the last night of the festival or camera malfunctions, all of Can You See Me and the last part of Purple Haze were not filmed. So he came up with two solutions so the song could appear in the film. Can You See Me was used during the film's opening as soundtrack to footage of avant-garde street artist Denny Dent creating a picture of Jimmy from the crash landing cover on a brick wall in an alley. The footage of Purple Haze was included at the end, then when it ran out, the end credits rolled while the song kept playing. I do wonder what made him do it in 1986 when 1987 would have been the 20th anniversary of the festival. Now, I haven't been able to confirm if HBO actually showed this in 1986, but they did release the film on VHS by 1989. Wiki says 1987, but I bought this while visiting my buddy David down in Little Rock in 1989, and I hadn't remembered seeing it before. And it wasn't the last Hendrix-related item I saw on that trip. Johnny Be Good. One thing that did hit the VHS stands for sure in June 1986 was a quote-unquote video EP as well as an audio EP called Johnny Be Good. It was an odd collection of songs and videos, most of them new, but seemingly just all random. Even odder was that this one didn't come out on reprise. It came out on Capitol, home of the Band of Gypsies. I thought at one point it might have been related that Capital got a further judgment or something, but no, it looks like Douglas just went out and made a separate deal with the company that released the album. Side One starts out with Voodoo Child from the Atlanta Pop Festival on July 4th, 1970. It's an odd track to open with since it's usually towards the end of shows. Even stranger is it's edited by around three minutes. I had no idea why until, well... We'll, we'll bring it up again when we get to the video. Next up is Johnny B. Good from Berkeley. For those who didn't want to splurge for the Jimmy Hendrix soundtrack, this gave them another option. The side concludes with All Along the Watchtower from Atlanta, or should I say, All Around the Watchtower. The first time a live version gets U.S. release, and it's one where Jimmy messes up the title. Side 2 only had two songs. The Star Spangled Banner from Atlanta, which was taken from a longer medley, you can hear straight ahead at the end, and Machine Gun from the second set at Berkeley. Remember that Machine Gun I mentioned using for the alternate war heroes? Well, this is it. So the EP is over and done in a little over 26 minutes. It's actually long for an EP. Usually they're kind of under 20. Why not just tack on one more song to each side and make it an actual album? Heck, it'd be longer than Crash Landing. Now, the VHS tape was something else altogether. It starts out with the promo video for Are You Experienced, I mentioned last time with the Alan Douglas cameo, followed by the Johnny B. Good video from Berkeley. Along the Watchtower from Atlanta makes its video debut, followed by something called Art Attack. What is it? Well, Danny Dent must have been piling up the residuals in 1986. It's the exact same footage used in Jimmy Plays Monterey of him doing the painting, just set to a montage of Jimmy's music. It really works better with just Can You See Me. The Star Spangled Banner from Atlanta is next, complete with Fourth of July fireworks and all. Finally, we get Voodoo Child from Atlanta, but we don't get the video of Voodoo Child from Atlanta. 
we get the four and a half minute edit from the album with some interpretive dance plopped over top. What in the hell were they thinking? Who wants to watch this? At least it's at the end, so you can just pop the tape out before you even get there. This was one of those times you look at something and go, so what was the point of this whole little exercise? Why is this album even here? Why do we get these bits and pieces instead of a full album of either Atlanta or Berkeley? And you don't even get a full album. Were they throwing darts at a board to pick the songs? There's absolutely no rhyme or reason for these songs to be on this album. I'm not sure if this was ever released on CD in the U.S. I saw an image online of a CD. Couldn't find out any more info about it. All of these songs have been reissued on other releases, so unless you're really in the mood for that shortened voodoo child, there's really no reason to look for this. Band of Gypsies 2. For the second Capitol release of 1986, Alan returned to the quote-unquote scene of the crime and in October put out a sequel to the 1970 album. There was only one problem. No one could find the original master tape. Well, that's not right. Let me put it this way. No one had seen the original master tape since 1970. So what to do if one wanted to make a sequel? They had the black and white videotape of almost the entire first set of January 1st, which included Who Knows and Machine Gun from the first album, Changes, Stepping Stone, Power of Soul, Foxy Lady, Stop that fades out, and Earth Lose that fades in. So, like I said, the first two songs were on the first album. Changes in Power of Soul were on there as well, but from the second set. Stepping Stone was okay, but they just put out the studio Stepping Stone by Band of Gypsies on Kiss the Sky. All they got Earth Blues was the final soloing section after most of the singing was done, so no point putting that out. And it appears that in the section that didn't record is where Burning Desire was performed. At least we think I'll, I'll get to that point in a later episode. So they took the audio of Foxy Lady and the 445 they got of Stop and put that on. But that's only like 11 minutes. Somehow they were able to find a copy of Hear My Train a Coming from the first set on December 31st, 1969. Jimmy Netty had considered it for the original album, mixed it, and made a cut of it. That's possibly where they got it. But that's still only one side. For side two... Alan dipped back into the Berkeley Atlanta pool and came up with Stone Free and Easy Rider from Berkeley and Voodoo Child from Atlanta. Wait a minute, didn't we just get Voodoo Child from Atlanta a few months ago? Well, this time it's the full seven-minute cut. Now, a strange thing happened. For a time, and in certain areas, a different version of the album came out. Side one had Hear My Train of Common, but then had the first two tracks of the original side two, Voodoo Child and Stone Free. Why was Voodoo Child the opening track of Side 2? Anyway, the new side still had Easy Rider, but also contained Hey Joe from Atlanta with its unique flamenco-style opening, as well as a twofer of Hey Baby and Lover Man from Berkeley. Now, to add to the fun, if you go back to the In the West version of Lover Man, you hear the familiar opening of Stone Free, the same version that was on the regular release. So... Why didn't they just release Hey Baby, Lover Man, and Stone Free all in a row? I, I don't know. It's It almost seems like they prepared an alternate version, but something came up and made them change their mind. 
I think slightly rearranged, it'd be a better album, but it ain't Band of Gypsies. There's also a comment I'm trying to hunt down, but haven't been able to find exactly where it was, but someone was saying that it didn't really matter who was doing the drumming, it was all Jimmy's music, but it definitely did make a difference. Buddy Miles and Mitch Mitchell had two very distinct styles and gave the songs a different feel. Machine Gun from Band of Gypsies and the Berkeley one from Johnny B. Good are perfect examples. Both performances are excellent, but they're completely different, here's that word again, experiences. In any case, this album was definitely the better of the two compared to Johnny B. Good. Now, why couldn't Johnny B. Good have all the Berkeley stuff and this one have all the Atlanta stuff on side too? Just like that, you made both albums better. Once the original tapes were found, they could have actually made a decent album out of other songs from the concerts. I'll talk about that when we get to the Band of Gypsies box that came out in 2019. So after these two albums, the Capitol re-experiment was done. Neither album charted, and the Monterey album only hit 192. Time to look elsewhere to where the American Revolution started. Ryko Disc. One thing the advent of the compact disc did was give an excuse for people to get material out, either reissued or for the first time. Massachusetts-based Disc arose in the mid-80s as a compact disc exclusive company, and in their heyday of 10 years, they were able to get some pretty big catalogs, David Bowie, Elvis Costello, and Frank Zappa, to name a few. They also worked with smaller artists to get them exposure in the new format. I'm not sure who approached who, but Alan Douglas made a deal to put together an album for them, and it would concentrate on Jimmy's October 1968 run at Winterland. As I mentioned earlier, the tapes were listened to but passed over for release on a possible live album or capital uh, give-over album. I have to think Jimmy had some bad memories of equipment issues that might have made him not want to bother going back to them. That's too bad because there's a lot of interesting stuff in those six shows. A lot of problems too, but there was certainly enough for one album, if not two. Live at Winterland. I've been trying to track down exactly when this album was released in 1987. I want to say early because I have this memory of hearing one of the tracks, I think it was Sunshine of Your Love, on WNEW in my college dorm room, so that would have to be before May of 1987. With the exception of Monterey, since it's just one performance, this was officially the first time an album tried to recreate a Hendrix set list from one venue. And it worked out pretty well since the shows around that time were in the one hour, 15 minute ballpark. And remember, a CD back then can only hold 74 minutes. The CD starts off with Winterland owner Bill Graham introducing the band, after which they break into fire. Through the magic of editing, we get the introduction from one night, I think it's the 12th, flowing right into fire from the previous night. I think the intro is the same on the one from concerts. It's, I believe it's the same performance because Fire from Winterland kicks off that CD too. Uh, I'd have to dig it out to double check. Haven't, haven't heard it in a while. Thankfully, the album gets into new material pretty quickly and it's a rarity. The band didn't perform Manic Depression all that often and only did it once during the six shows at Winterland. It's about two minutes longer than the studio version, so it allowed Jimmy to stretch things out a bit. 
On the other hand, the next track, Sunshine of Your Love, as I mentioned before, was a fairly regular part of the band shows from 1968 and 1969. It's an interesting turnabout since Jack Bruce came up with the classic original riff as a tribute to Jimmy. So once Cream announced they were breaking up, he returned the favor. Instead of doing a vocal back and forth like Jack and Eric did, they did it as an instrumental. Despite not being able to sing, it actually became a spotlight for Noel as he would take a bass solo during the song's middle section. While there was the version already in circulation on the Royal Albert Hall Ember albums, this was the first time the song was available on an official release. And once again, editing helped out by taking the intro from the performance on the 12th and matching it to the actual song from the 10th. Now, of all the songs on Axis Bold as Love, Spanish Castle Magic is the one that was played the most in concert. Believe it or not, he pretty much stopped doing Little Wing after Royal Albert Hall. They played Spanish Castle Magic twice at Winterland. This one is from the 12th. It's almost twice as long as the studio cut. And the other one is twice as long as this one. We'll get to that one later on when we get to the Winterland box set in the 2010s. Despite, or maybe because of, being left off of the U.S. release of Are You Experienced, Red House was a Hendrix staple from early on all the way through to his last shows. While not quite as good as the one from San Diego, this one is as pretty much as good as the one from the Isle of Wight. It even has Jimmy having a bit of fun at the end with some additional lyrics tossed in. The song was performed all three nights, with this one from the 11th being the shortest. Next up, after not getting the track for a decade and a half, we get a second Jimmy version of Killing Floor in three years. This time, it's an expansive jam from the 10th with Jefferson Airplane bassist and lately guest star Jack Cassidy joining the band. It's the only time it was performed during the run of six shows. Next is Tax Free. The studio version was available for a few years in the U.S. on War Heroes, but a live version never made it out until now. So this was a lot of people's first exposure to the song. And Alan employed his Nine to the Universe editing techniques, so the song was cut down from over 15 minutes to eight, but there were equipment issues that required a lot of vamping that was also cut out of a later version. So in this case, it was justified to give people an overall sense of the song. Astonishingly, at this point for Foxy Lady, there was only the Monterey and Isla White versions released for this song to show it in a live context, so something somewhere in between was called for. This is basically what the song sounded like in this era. For the album's finale, Allen and Company picked something unique, a three-song series that flowed one into the other, and it began with a wild, out-of-the-ordinary opening flourish that was totally new. After a minute or so, the band kicks into Hey Joe and performs it with decent enough enthusiasm for a song he grew tired of every now and then. From there, they go into Purple Haze without the wild Star Spangled Banner opening he'd been doing for most of the other shows during the run. The band ends the trio of songs with an increasingly rare wild thing, though this one was not like Fire. It had also been on Jimi Hendrix concerts. But it's a decent enough finish if you weren't going to do the Star Spangled Banner Purple Haze combo. The album didn't officially make the charts. That might have been because it was a CD-only release. It didn't qualify for the top 200. But it did sell over 200,000 copies, which was a lot more than probably anything back to the crash landing era. Its success led to not only another Hendrix CD from Riker Disc, but five years later, it was reissued as a box set, more on those in a bit, 
with a t-shirt and an additional CD called Live at Winterland Plus Three. Yes, it meant the CD has three additional songs from Winterland. Two of the titles may look familiar from concerts, but they were different versions. The one on concerts was from the 10th. These were from the 11th. Are You Experienced opened the show that day and ran for 17 minutes with flautas of Virgil Gonzalez sitting in. For some reason, they cut three or four minutes out of this, so we still get a hefty 13 and a half minute version. Voodoo Child was up next, and it's a little snappier than the one on concerts. Like a Rolling Stone finished up the disc. The song was done each day, and each time it was done a little differently. This show had Herbie Rich singing in an organ for several songs, and somehow it man- they managed to get an out-of-tune organ, or maybe it's because he was tuned one way and Jimmy and Noel were tuned another. It sounds a little odd. A couple of the songs from the original Winterland album were also from this show. They had the uh, organ completely mixed down. Radio 1. Now this one, I know when it came out. I have a very distinct memory of it. I started getting into Hendrix during the summer of 1988. I saw in one of the magazines, probably, probably Guitar World or Guitar Player or something like that, that a new Hendrix album was coming out. I just stayed later at school one night, probably to watch a movie for film class. So like all music lovers at Rutgers in the 80s, I made the trek over to the corner of George and Church to Cheap Thrills. If you wanted normal stuff, you went to Sam Goody. But if you wanted something out of the ordinary, like imports, that's where you went. I bought it, swung by my friend's house on Conduct Street, and popped it into Feather CD player for a listen. Good times, man. This CD collects most of the existing recordings that the experience did in 1967 for the BBC. At the time, the corporation had a bunch of different music shows for their various channels, the best known being Top of the Pops. Many of these recordings were either lost or taped over since they weren't necessarily thinking of keeping them for posterity. But quite a number did remain, so we were able to get releases from many artists through the years like The Beatles, The Who, Cream, and Led Zeppelin, among many others. This album documents five sessions from February through December. Of course, they didn't do them in the order they were recorded. That makes too much sense. And as expected, they left a couple of songs off. The first session was on February 13th, where the band performed Hey Joe, Stone Free, Foxy Lady, and Lover Confusion. These songs were among the earliest ones the band had worked on, Hey Joe and Stone Free from October of 1966, the other two from December of that year. The only song they could have realistically done at this point was Can You See Me, but I guess there wasn't enough time in a 15-minute show. Stone Free kicks off the CD, Lover Confusion is track five, and the other two are down almost at the end. The next session was a month later, and now they had some of their bigger tunes to choose from. The session started with Purple Haze, but they decided to chop off Brian Matthews talking over the opening of the song's distinctive intro. Brian talks over the beginning of the next song as well, Fire, but this time they left it on. You know, actually, it's kind of cool. It's like, Jimmy Graves on with the next song, Fire. The short session ended with, yes, you guessed it, Killing Floor. We got a variable flood of them now. The band didn't return to the BBC recording studios until October, when they were so popular they recorded not one, but two shows for the broadcaster to air on two different programs. The first one was recorded on October 6th. It featured five songs and some additional behind-the-scenes fun. We get four of them here. The opener, Little Miss Lover, is omitted. 
I have to wonder if it's because Brian Matthews, again, is talking over the top. The session also included the new single, Burning of the Midnight Lamp, which Alan puts at the end of the CD. Finally, this session had three cover tunes, two of which appear back-to-back on the CD. Driving South may or may not actually be a cover tune. It was a song Jimmy did with Curtis Knight and the Squires and is on their Hackensack Live album. Now, on that record, Curtis says is one of Jimmy's songs. At one point, I think it was credited to Curtis Knight, but more recently, I've seen it with Jimmy's name on it. It must have been percolating on the underground because in 1983, an early recording by Steve Ray Vaughan has him covering this. The song does bear a striking resemblance to the Albert Collins uh, instrumental thought, but Stevie's version sounds closer to Jimmy's. The next song, Catfish Blues, also called Experiencing the Blues, is an amalgamation of a couple of Muddy Water songs, Rolling Stone and Still a Fool. The song Catfish Blues itself probably goes back further to the Delta Blues era. The earliest version is, I think, by Robert Petway in 1941. In many other recordings, the band would kick into the old blues number Cat Squirrel, punctuated by the opening riff to Spoonfill at the end, but the band dropped that section for this version. The show ended with a cover of Hound Dog, which owed way more to Big Mama Thornton than it did to Elvis Presley. There's another recording done with a famous guest star playing something you wouldn't normally expect him to play, but that'll have to wait until the uh, updated and expanded version in the 90s. The second session the band recorded that month was for Alexis Corner's Rhythm and Blues show. Of the three songs recorded, only one makes it here. The band opened with a cover of Bob Dylan's Can You Please Crawl Out of Your Window, a non-album single from the Highway 61 Blonde on Blonde era. That didn't make it on here, maybe because it's a Dylan cover, but Bob would have happily let it on. I don't know if uh, Alan asked him. In fact, Douglas was contemplating a Hendrix Does Dylan release where this song would have obviously fit in, but it never happened. They also did a version of Driving South on this show, that's not included here, but truth be told, the one they included from the earlier session is better. The one that did make it onto this release is another Muddy Water song, Hoochie Coochie Man. It's very similar to the one he did later at uh, in Baggies with the band of Gypsies, the one that ended up on Loose Ends. This one is different because Alexis Corner is joining in on acoustic slide. The final session occurred in mid-December and was broadcast on Christmas Eve 1967. All five songs recorded that night made the CD. The session started with Jimmy doing a fake jingle for BBC Radio 1. It was followed up by a couple of songs from Axis Bold as Love, Spanish Castle Magic, and Wait Until Tomorrow. Next up was another cover tune, this one by a little band called The Beatles. Jimmy had done Day Tripper with Curtis Knight way back when, so he knew it well enough. The liner notes hint the song may have had a secret special guest star and background vocals. You know, just imagine. Uh, But no, it's not him. It's just Noel doing a very close Lennon imitation. The session ended with the premiere of a new song Jimmy called Get My Heart Back Together, but later better known as Hear My Train A-Coming. One thing in particular I do have to bring up about this session is Noel's enthusiastic participation, joining in on vocals a lot. Redding's frustration with the band are well-known, and things started breaking down a few weeks later during the recording of Electric Ladyland. I think it's great to hear him really enjoying himself and adding a lot of fun to the whole session. Since it ends with Jimmy wishing everyone a Merry Christmas, this is 
kind of become a Christmas tradition with me, listening to it, usually on the way home from work on the 23rd, when I used to actually commute home from work. I guess whatever issue Billboard had with CDs was sorted out at this point, because the album hit the charts and made it to 119. It hit the top 30 in the UK, so it shows there was still a thriving audience for Jimmy's music, even almost 20 years after his death. Now, remember I mentioned in my trip to Little Rock in 1989 that there was another Hendrix sighting along with the Monterey VHS? There was a used record store, I want to say somewhere on University Avenue. There was this other cool record store like on the side of a mountain in North Little Rock where I got my soundtrack to the Warriors, uh, but it wasn't in that one. So I'm going through the CDs and I find this Rykodisc sampler called Steal This Disc Volume 2. And the second song on it is Lover Man from the upcoming release, Isle of Wight. Now, by that point, I was really wired into Hendrix. I was getting two guitar magazines plus Ice. So if there was an Isle of Wight album coming out, I would have known about it. The only one I'd seen up to that point was a tape of the 1971 album over at Ira's Record Center on Route 18 across from Brunswick Square Mall. But in the end, that album never showed up from Rykodisc. It only lasted two albums, but the Rykodisc experiment showed reprise that in the digital era, there was a pretty healthy market for Hendrix on CD. So they went back to the drawing board and started by redoing the original albums and adding in some help from the radio. In the next episode, we'll look at the box sets that came out, trying to give fans a reason to plop down a lot of bucks in one shot with kind of mixed results. That's next time on Keep On Grooving. I'm John Archer. Happy Thanksgiving to the folks here in the States. Happy 25th to my friends Darren and Marcy. And a happy 79th to the subject of our series. We've missed out a lot of good music from Jimmy in the past 50 years. I wonder if he's up there giving Charlie Watts his time in the Heavenly Band. Remember to hit that subscribe button if you like what you're hearing. See you next time.